This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. You may have seen in the news recently that Fordham University has signed a deal to work together with the New York Botanical Garden. Here's Fordham biologist John Ware describing the plant collaboration, in case you missed it. At the moment, it's a very general understanding, uh, simply to agree to begin educational and research collaboration, so things such as co-supervising graduate student and undergraduate student research, but also things like preparing research proposals to funding agencies to expand our research activity. Now, I don't think I'm entirely alone in saying that when I read about this collaboration, I was a little bit surprised to learn that the Botanical Garden wasn't just a place with pretty flowers. Most people visit the Botanical Garden as a kind of park or a place to view uh, plants. But in fact, the New York Botanical Garden is one of the foremost scientific institutions in the country. They have the largest herbarium of plants in the Western Hemisphere, and it's, I believe, the fourth largest herbarium in the world. So their collection of plants is extraordinary, and the scientists working there have enormous expertise. Hmm. Well, this week on the show, we are going to take a look at one exhibit at the garden that combines scientific exploration, or rather the history of scientific exploration, with the garden's more display-oriented aspects. The exhibit is called Darwin's Garden, and it's a look at how plants, not just the famous Galapagos Island finches, were instrumental in Darwin's framing of his theory. In a few minutes, we'll speak with the exhibit's curator about why Darwin was into botany and about why we should be into Darwin. And later on the show, we'll talk with a biologist who studies penguins about one of their more interesting adaptations. But first, I hopped across the street to the garden earlier this week for a tour of the exhibit. My guide was garden archivist Stephen Sinan. Here we have a wonderful geranium from an 18th century uh, hand-colored book in the library's collections. And here is Darwin's original notes from the botany class that he took at Cambridge University. Darwin was sent to Cambridge originally to uh, study medicine, which was the family tradition. And um, he didn't like that very much. He went on to study theology, which he didn't like very much. And he then went on to study botany, which we have here in the class register for the botany course. It shows that he took the course three times, uh, not because he failed it, because he really, really loved it. He found his niche in life with botany. Here we have, in this case, the, the beagle. Darwin would go around the tip of South America and he would come to the islands that we now call the Galapagos. Uh, We have here several mock-ups of plant specimens that he collected on the Galapagos. There would be over 200 of them that he would collect. Upon returning to England after the voyage of the Beagle, Darwin would start to sketch out his theory and he would... um, Certainly, he brought all of his plants to his friend Joseph Dalton Hooker to be examined and identified. And what we see here in Darwin's notebook is the very first time in science of what is today the very well-known tree of life. Darwin was the first to draw this in a scientific way. This tree is drawn so that some of the branches just simply end, and those are uh, things that are now extinct. And the others are evolving And this is the very first time that we see this uh, written in science, and it's all around us today. The rest of the cases in the exhibition deal with Charles Darwin's uh, individual plant experiments and some unusual stories that we have here, uh, especially with orchids. Uh, 
We can see here a depiction of the famous Darwin orchid. He took delight in uh, wondering what sort of creature could pollinate the plants. And here it's called the Darwin orchid because he long thought that there was a creature who could go into that very, very long tube and reach the nectar at the bottom. But none was ever known or observed uh, pollinating this plant until long after his death, at which time there was a moth that was discovered. And it's called the Darwin moth, and this is the Darwin orchid. It's a famous story there. Uh, Darwin conjectured for a long time what was the... Uh, the reason for flowers, for being. And for him, it was a sexual attraction. It was to get insects to pollinate the plants. The prevailing idea of plant pollination in the Victorian era was one that the, the plants were self-pollinating. If you look at the flower, you can see the stamen, you can see the pollen, pistils. Um, however, we know that this is not the case. It's uh, actually... Insect pollination is the major cause uh, and reason for um, cross-pollination in plants. Here we have a Darwin illustration of a sundew plant. A sundew belongs to that family of carnivorous plants, like a Venus flytrap. Uh, it has sticky substance, and it will draw an insect, and then it will uh, wrap itself around the insect. Darwin absolutely tortured this plant with a series of experiments because he tried to prove that it actually was an animal not a plant. So not all of his theories were actually uh, able to be proven. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're taking a little bit of a plant's eye view of evolution. This in mind, I wanted to speak to the Darwin's Garden exhibit curator, David Cohn. Cohn started out as a botanist, but his interest shifted a little bit, and now he's been studying Darwin for upwards of 30 years. I reached Cone earlier this week in England, where he is a senior research fellow with the Charles Darwin Trust in London. David Cone, thanks so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Now, tell me about this exhibit. Well, this is an exhibit that focuses on a part of Darwin's life that tends to get a little overlooked, and that is the fact that he was a botanist throughout much of his uh, scientific career and really had, even from his childhood, a strong affinity and engagement with plants. So it's a kind of intellectual biography, if you like, in exhibit form through that perspective of his discoveries about plants and how important they were for, for his um, intellectual maturation as, a, as an evolutionist. So how much of a role did plants play? They played a, a key role. I would say one of the major threads that weaves into this whole pattern of his, of his science. And you know, I, I, I think thing I'd like to emphasize is that Darwin has a vision of all of nature, ultimately, that can be explained through evolution. And plants are an enormous part of life. And so, in a way, he had to deal with the specific issues the plants pose. What really overwhelmed him when he stepped off the boat onto the first island of the Galapagos Archipelago was the tremendous uh, diversity and difference uh, that the plants showed compared to what he'd seen on the continent of South America. And it made him wonder about how this unique flora could have come into being. How did that happen? And he started collecting plants and found that many, many of them uh, were endemic. And that set up the question for him. How are islands, how do they function as kind of laboratories, living laboratories for, for evolution? So what, what plants did he find and why were they important to him? One 
exotic plant in the Galapagos is a genus called Scalesia. It's a genus of trees and shrubs that are really in the kind of daisy family, the composites. And here on this island, daisies, which you think of as small garden plants or even sunflowers, same family, uh, they grow to be forest trees. Now, how could that happen? And he found also that there were many species of this genus. The genus exists only on the Galapagos, and several species, very different, distinct species, live only there. So, you know, that, that's a big problem. How do, you, how do you explain that? Ultimately, he will explain it by evolution. One thing that definitely seems like a botanical concept that comes up a lot when you talk about Darwin is the tree of life. I know that's yes. not just about plants, but tell me about the tree of life. Well, once Darwin got back from the Beagle voyage, uh, he was really clearly determined to investigate this hypothesis. As a hypothesis, are species the product of descent, of evolution? Is What is the evidence for and against that? He developed this way of conceptualizing all of evolution as a tree of life, where the elements of which are, are related to each other. If you've got a chance to look at the notebook, the B notebook, and it's a very famous drawing by now, it begins at a point, and it branches, and it's in a very irregularly branched tree. It has some ends or tips of the branches have lines suggesting that they are still growing and might bud into further branches, and other lines just stop, and they are they represent extinction. So what's built into this image is a kind of balance between the creation of new species, the origination by evolution of new species, and their extinction. So it's a pretty powerful metaphor. In the notebook, he says, I think, and then draws the tree. So it's sort of like, uh, I think, therefore, evolution. There are some plants and animals that seem to sort of epitomize the idea of evolution, or you look at them and you say, well, how could that not come from evolution? Tell me what some of those plants are that Darwin would have seen on the Galapagos Islands or in his everyday life that led him to think, oh, gosh, this must be what's going on. Well, you know, it's not specific species. It's actually more, the thing that really intrigued him is the phenomenon of adaptation. That's how is it that particular, let's say the orchids, which he, he wrote a whole book about, how come the orchids are so closely adapted that the only way they can get their pollen from one flower to another is through the intervention of a pollinator, a specific, often a specific insect or even bird that takes the pollen from one plant to another. Now, how does that happen? That's the big problem. What is the origin of new adaptations? Clearly, it's in the interest of, of, of a plant to, to reproduce and needs to move its pollen from one plant to another, and it, in a way, co-ops another totally different organism from a different part of the world, you know, a different part of the kingdom, a different kingdom, an animal kingdom, to do its bidding, in, in a sense. It's a, from a plant's eye point of view, the, the bird or the, the, the butterfly is a means for getting, the plant's means for getting uh, its reproductive organ from one place to another. And... That's an you know, potent example of adaptation. That's what intrigued him. And then he always associated, if you get those adaptations, those specializations, uh, that would lead to the origin of new species. So we have, humans have 
wonderful adaptations. You might even call the whole of our intelligence, our capacity for language and for thought, one giant kind of adaptation. That's what makes us distinctively human. So that's the question. That's the way he encompasses all of life. How did you get interested in Darwin? I got interested through ecology. Back in the 1970s, when I went to graduate school, the environment was just becoming tremendously important to people, and I went there, went to graduate school to study ecology. And in graduate school, I was exposed to Darwin, and I came to understand, thanks to my professors, that actually the underlying theory of ecology is evolution. I'd never really put the two together, because ecology seems to be how plants and animals live together now. But really, evolution shows how they kind of a moving interaction through time and space. Uh, so I got this large vision, and then I, then the other part of my soul, besides being a scientist, has always been being, in, having an interest in the humanities and literature and philosophy and really in history. And I asked the historical question, uh, well, how did Darwin do this? And professor sent me to England, to Cambridge, where uh, Cambridge University Library in particular, where Dar- all Darwin's papers and a very large collection of his manuscripts uh, are held. And I've been trying to answer that question ever since, since about 1974, the question of Darwin's own personal growth. So what have you come up with that we might not know? <laughs> well, you know, Getting back to plants, the one thing I've come to understand is that plants posed a special problem for Darwin, and that is in most flowers, if you think about it, you have both male and female parts in the same flower. You know, they have stamens with pollen, female parts that have eggs in their ovaries, and there they are in the same flower. And you'd think that the easy thing would be for the pollen of one flower to pollinate the female part of the same flower. And he realized that if that was true, and they're right there next to, next to each other, if that was true, basically it would be like cloning, reproducing with yourself. And if you did that over and over again, you would lose variability, the capacity to vary, because it's the same reproducing with the same, no variation. And he did realize that for evolution to work, there must be a sort of constant stream of, of variation. And plants flowers uh, seem to defy that on this sort of really thinking from first evolutionary principles about the need for variation you realize that really the whole structure of the beauty of the flower you know the petals that attract insects really have this function of preventing um, too much inbreeding of you know getting flowers to spread the variability maintain variability throughout a population and that colored a lot of his work. Uh, you know, he wrote, eventually we would write six botanical books exclusively on plants. And um, much of the work that he did, not all of it, much of it is to solve that question or to show his idea that, there must, that the point of the flower is that it's a, it's, um, it has a meaning, an evolutionary meaning. The flower is an organ of evolution. With Charles Darwin, you have a sort of a weird dichotomy because you have somebody who came up with one of the bases of the way that we think about science in a lot of ways. But you also have somebody who is a pretty recent historical figure and one that when we learn about him in history class isn't, you know, generally seen as being 
that exciting on his own. How do you teach people about Darwin without turning them off by science or history? Uh, you know what I found is that um, the thing about Darwin is that he has this tremendous capacity for observation and thinking. And if, once you start explaining to people the intimate details of uh, his perception through ob- close observation, the, the beautiful things that he did figure out, they just fall in love with it. You know, he did his science at home, uh, in the grounds around his home, and actually in the countryside around his home. And the stories about his, the involvement of his children and the rest of his family in helping him do his experiments and helping him make his observations, you, you get a, a genuine picture of the human being. Now, this is a human being who you might say he's boring. I, I, I prefer to say that he's a nice guy, <laughs> but a very, very smart and um, insightful, nice person. And as you start to learn his humanity, uh, you learn his science, and they go hand in hand. Uh, that's been the response to the exhibit, I think, uh, and it's very gratifying to me that if you tell the stories of his discoveries and see how they form part of his life, then people get it. So the distinction between interesting life and scientific knowledge it kind of evaporates. We get intrigued. David Cohn is a senior research fellow with the Charles Darwin Trust in London, general editor of the Darwin Digital Library of Evolution, and the curator of the Darwin's Garden exhibit at the New York Botanical Garden. That exhibit is on through next Sunday at the Botanical Garden. You can find more information at nybg.org. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. On today's show, a conversation with an unlikely cat lady. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, as David Cohn pointed out, one of the real cornerstones of evolution is the idea that species adapt to their environments. These adaptations take a lot of different forms. For example, plants and animals that live in dark places tend to lose their color, and if it's dark enough, their eyes. But many adaptations, and some of the most outlandish, have to do with reproduction and the raising of young. Some birds do elaborate dances to attract mates. Some plants have developed flowers that look just like a sexy version of the insect they're trying to get to come on over and pollinate them, and so on. But many adaptations also have to do with the sounds that animals make, and these are often some of the most spectacular. Take the Magellanic penguin, for example. Colloquially known as the jackass penguin, Magellanic penguins, who live for the most part on the Patagonian coast of Argentina, have a call that is both spectacular and, for them, useful. Fordham biologist Alan Clark has been studying Magellanic penguin songs for a number of years. I spoke to him about what he's discovered about the species, the usefulness of their songs, and about the usefulness of penguin cuteness in conservation efforts. Alan Clark, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you work with penguins and the songs that they sing? I do. I've been studying Magellanic penguins for the last decade down in Argentina. And although I'm looking at all of their ecology, I focus primarily on their vocalizations, or I like to say their songs. So tell me, tell me about their songs. 
Well, the song is actually not something you might expect. They're, it sounds a lot like a donkey braying, this particular species. In fact, a nickname for them is the jackass penguin because they sound like donkeys. And because they behave horribly at parties. Often. So what, what do they communicate through the songs? Well, one of the things I've been looking at is how these songs are used. and they, they sing, vocalize constantly, especially at the beginning of the breeding season. And in fact, the noise is deafening at the colony at the beginning of the breeding season as males advertise for a mate. In this particular species at the colony I study, it's the females who choose the mate, and the males spend a lot of time advertising. So I wondered, well, why do they sing all the time? Why are they constantly advertising? So I began to examine that question. And what did you find? Well, one of the first things I decided to look at is, can they actually tell each other apart just by their voice? And what I've seen is sometimes I'm standing in the colony watching, and I see a female wandering through the colony. And this is a scrub desert, so the visibility isn't very good. And so these females are wandering between the shrubs, and all of a sudden they perk up their head and they make a beeline to some male that they can't even see. I assume it's because they can hear him. And I figure out, well, what are they hearing? Do they recognize it? Is there something really exciting about that particular call? So I begin to examine whether or not they could tell each other apart just by their voice. And what did you find? Well, what I found is that when I played a female who was incubating her eggs, the call of her mate, the call of a neighbor, and the call of a stranger, they reacted very differently. When I played the call of a stranger to her, she did nothing. When I played the call of a neighbor, she did nothing. But when I played her mate call, she would often leap up off her eggs and run out of the nest thinking that her mate was home and would relieve her. Because in this species, the female takes the first incubation stint on the eggs while the male goes at sea. So by the time the male comes back to the, from the sea, she's actually been on land for about a month without eating or drinking. So she's very anxious for him to get home. And I actually feel a little guilt about uh, giving her the call without the bird actually being there. But it did show that they can actually tell they're made from other birds. What does their call sound like? What I guess it sounds a little bit like a donkey, but could you give us some kind of a indication of what it might actually sound like? There's several different types of calls. There's the call that the males do when they're advertising, and that's the one that sounds most like a donkey, you know, the ha-ha-ha-ha kind of thing that you are used to hearing. And then there's a duet that pairs perform, which is a, a lovely, um, tightly overlapping duet that synchronizes at the end. <laughs> And then there are the calls that uh, chicks make when they're begging from their parents. And some of my research has also shown that those chicks recognize and can discriminate between the calls, the duets of their parents versus stranger pairs. Because if you're a chick, it's really important to be able to recognize your parents because your parents leave you alone for days and days at a time. And you don't want to beg to the wrong parent because parents get very possessive of their food and actually violence may ensue if you beg to the wrong bird. What do they literally communicate through the calls? I think I've shown pretty clearly that they can recognize each other individually, which isn't really a surprise. What's interesting is that when you have all of these calls happening simultaneously, what are the females who are doing the the choosing here as far as mates are concerned? What are they hearing? And I have examined that in quite a bit of detail. And what I've done is I've taken some of these uh, advertising calls from hundreds of males and literally analyze thousands of them. And I measure all kinds of things about them, how long they are, what's the uh, the lowest pitch, you know, in the bray part, and how long is the bray. And so I've measured 30 different parameters, you might call it, on thousands of calls. And what I found is that every one of the parameters I measured is able to code individually specific information. 
That doesn't prove that the females can perceive it, but it shows that the potential is there. And when I have taken those measurements and correlated some measures of male quality, say their size, their age, their nest quality, their reproductive success, what I've shown is that you can indeed tell something about a guy just by his voice. Being out in the field, I can recognize some individuals myself, even though I am not a penguin. I'm able to tell a few individuals just because their voices are unique enough for even my relatively untrained ears to discriminate. But I had noticed in the field that the really old birds, birds that are 20, 25 years old, sounded a little different. So instead of a nice strong ha-ha-ha-ha, it sounded like ha-ha-ha-ha. They were shorter, like maybe they'd been chain-smoking for 20 years. And um, it was just a very different type of call. And so I think that information is in the calls for females. And so if they're looking for an older penguin, um, an experienced male, rather than some young bird without experience, she should be able to tell that just by his call. What do you think about movies like uh, Happy Feet and things like that that personify the penguins? Do you think that's a good thing or do you think it's a bad thing? Well, I must start with the March of the Penguins because that sort of was the first of the big penguin movies, you know, ranging from Happy Feet to Madagascar. I think that March of the Penguins, it's is surprising in the amount of attention and focus it got because natural history and how life survives, in particularly in harsh climates, is such a compelling story. It grabbed almost everyone who saw it. It truly is a compelling life history. And while not all species have such harsh environments they live in, if you examine almost any species, you'll, you'll be able to see some fascinating, interesting, and heartbreaking and heartwarming aspects of the lives of all creatures and all plants. And so I think that that was a, a marvelous thing to happen. It pro- provided so much attention on penguin species as well as the Antarctic environment in addition to conservation. So I think that that was a marvelous thing that got a lot of people really excited by penguins. And penguins have always been popular in and of themselves. This, however, I think really gave a boost to the idea of penguins as um, a focal point for conservation and environmental interest. So when you got to movies like Happy Feet and Madagascar, I thoroughly enjoyed them. The liberties that are taken are to be expected. You know, it's sort of like the new movie um, with the bees. They only have two body segments. They can't possibly be a true insect. Um, and the legs are wrong, And but who cares? And so understanding anything about the natural world, especially in our age of digitization where we spend more time indoors, focused on small screens, I think it's really important to continue to try to make connections in any way we can with the outside world because people need to get outside more. And so I think that these kind of movies, as far-fetched as they may be, I mean, a surfing penguin is not something that one might imagine. But if it piques the interest of children or adults, then I think it it's, serves a, a much greater purpose than pure entertainment. So you don't sit in the movie theater saying a penguin would never say that. Oh, of course I do. I do that all the time. I love anthropomorphizing. I know that's not necessarily rigorous scientifically, but I think people are animals. And when we talk about animals, it's okay to talk about them in terms that we can relate to. And so I do that because I think it's an effective um, mechanism of communication. In my classroom, um, even in scientific meetings, sometimes it's just easier to talk about things the way you see them and feel them rather than couch them in all sort of qualifications that you might do as a lawyer or a scientist. So I think it's a, it's a good thing to be able to uh, talk about species in ways that we can relate to. 
why are these penguins something that we should care about aside from their cuteness? Well, they, they are inherently cute, and that may alone be reason enough to care about them. Penguins have special meaning to me, and as I do think for many people, I'm an ardent conservation biologist, and I recognize the value in symbolic species. It's important for people to be able to relate to nature on some level, and often these charismatic species do speak to people. That's why we call them charismatic, is because that's exactly what they do. And I am certainly uh, part of that same group of people who are fascinated by a particular group. I'm an ardent birder, and I love birds, and I'm passionate about penguins. But I'm concerned more deeply about bigger issues of conservation. And um, penguins provide a wonderful way to look at the world. Um, They are sentinels of of climate change. They uh, help focus people's attention on issues of nature and conservation. So they're, they're really important that way. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think that if people are able to see something that interests them, that cares about them, that gets them outside, I think that they will have fuller, richer lives. I'm fascinated by a book on, it's called Nature Deficit Disorder, about how our children are losing the ability to connect with the natural world. And without that connection, I think we're going to lose the political support to preserve our natural world as greater pressures because of growing populations and greater resource consumption. So I'm just hoping that no matter how interesting or uninteresting or charismatic or not charismatic a species is, I just people find something to help them go outside and look. Well, Alan Clark is an assistant professor of animal ecology and conservation biology at Fordham. Alan, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Forum Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, and as always, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org, also in our audio archive, also on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful weekend.